The following is a sermon from the church at Cherry Dale in Greenville, South Carolina. To learn more, visit us at tccherrydale.com. Hey church, this is Pastor Brandon and coming to you with several announcements of things that are coming up over the course of the next month. So first is next Saturday, March 21st. We're having a work day, volunteer day at the church. We've had several since Grassroots Weekend and and gotten a lot done. So we'll be working on beautifying the ladies' room near the auditorium and uh, a handful of other projects in and outside of the building as Easter is quickly approaching. In the same evening, we have Parents' Night Out, which you can sign up for via the Facebook event for that. And uh, for anybody that just needs an evening, 4 to 8, and they'll have lots of great activities and feed the kids at the church. The uh, updates to the power at the church should be completed in this coming week, as far as we know. And so everything should be back to normal in the building after that. Although the construction on the HVAC will be uh, going for the next four or five weeks after this week. Then coming up at the beginning of uh, April on the 3rd is uh, Dr. Bruce Ashford teaching on uh, Christian witness in a secular age as we approach this 2020 election cycle and uh, all of the craziness that's going on in social media and around uh, workplace water coolers and everything else. We want to think about how we can uh, charitably and lovingly respond to people as Christians who uh, have hope in a God who puts rulers on thrones and and uh, makes sure that all things are working according to his plan and for our good, uh, and so that we can have a hope for a future and a way to talk about that with our secular friends. Following that is the family meeting for April on the 5th. You can also sign up for connections via the app or website if you are interested in joining with TCC. Then... Good Friday. This will be our first Good Friday service on April the 10th, and we'll get together for about an hour to uh, just remember the crucifixion and look forward together to Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, which is April the 12th. We'll have a breakfast during the core hour for that, and then uh, celebrate Easter together. Our new sermon series all things new will be beginning next weekend march the 22nd and uh, we'll be talking about all things new what we're moving into in heaven with new bodies uh, what all has been promised as a, a guarantee by way of the resurrection hope this all finds you well grab a calendar make a few notes and we look forward to being back together with you next week Thanks for taking the time to sit under the teaching of God's Word via this video format. Not being able to gather as a church family to worship should uh, frustrate us on some level, but I hope our frustration can soon turn to appreciating God's grace to give us a church where we love one another, serve one another, enjoy being together with one another, and can use our gifts for God's glory. As we conclude this journey through Colossians in our sermon series, Alive in Christ, our final sermon kind of models what Paul was doing in this letter and really all the others. Except for a few notable exceptions, Paul's great desire was to be physically present with the church that received these letters. So these letters were a substitute for his own personal presence. Even though his desire was not met, his desire to be with them was not met, Paul had the wisdom to rejoice that God was accomplishing what he wanted through Paul's life, and he was appreciative of the fact that he had a medium through which he could communicate with them. So we're kind of in the same situation. My desire is to share this message with you in person, but God in his providence has willed something else. So rather than thinking that this situation, to quote Johnny Cash, is like putting on our cleanest dirty shirt, let's rejoice that God has given us this medium for his message to be made known to his people. 
My prayer is that God's Spirit would empower me to deliver the message as I should. But before we read this scripture, let's take a moment on this national day of prayer to petition our God to make himself known to us through the teaching of scripture, to be merciful to our nation, to preserve the lives of those that have been infected with COVID-19, to protect those who've not yet contracted it, to be with those who are mourning the loss of a loved one, and to give us the ability to share the hope that Jesus Christ has given us with the folks around us who might be terrified by all that's going on in our culture. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have created technologies that allow us to be together even when we are apart. Lord, I pray that you would bless the reading and teaching of your word as folks uh, listen uh, and watch. I pray that you would, uh, by your spirit, empower the words that are spoken, that you would accomplish your purpose, that you would challenge each and every one of us with, um, with, with the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that you would be with our leaders, um, both in Washington and uh, Columbia and even here in Greenville, that you would give them a wisdom that, are, uh, or that is beyond their uh, abilities, that you would give them uh, an insight into uh, what the best decisions are to help all of the people of our country through this uh, crisis. Lord, I pray that you would uh, help them to put aside party affiliations to, to consider uh, what is best uh, on a broad scale and not use this uh, moment for political gain. Lord, I pray that you would be with those who are sick, that you would uh, heal them, that you would strengthen their bodies, uh, from the, the, the effects of this disease. Lord, we pray for folks that, are, uh, that have not yet contracted it. Lord, I pray that you would just continue to keep them protected, uh, especially those who might be more vulnerable to the more severe uh, elements of this disease. I pray that you would uh, just help folks to be wise about how they go about their business. Lord, I pray for those who are mourning the loss of people that they love. Lord, I pray that you would just uh, comfort, give grace and peace uh, that is beyond our understanding. And Lord, I pray that uh, in these times of uncertainty, where folks are maybe a bit more fearful of death, that you would empower us as your people to speak a good word about Jesus, that you would empower us to, uh, to just not have the fear that sometimes grips us, that we would be able to say that Jesus Christ is our hope, that in the face of all kinds of uncertainty, that he is the one who satisfies, he is the one who strengthens. And Lord, I pray that as as life maybe slows down a little bit in the next few weeks, I pray that you would help us not to retreat, but to leverage the opportunities that you provide to make much of Jesus. And we pray that in this time of uncertainty, that your people that are called by your name will declare your truth and all across our country, really all across the globe, that we would see uh, life-transforming work that your Spirit is doing, that people would be converted, that lives would be changed for eternity. We pray this in the strong and mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So let's begin reading in Colossians chapter 2, verse, or chapter 4, verse 2. This is what Paul says. Devote yourselves to prayer, Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for us 
or to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains so that I may make it known as I should act wisely toward outsiders making the most of the time let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt so that you may know how you should answer each person Tychicus our dearly beloved brother faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord will tell you all the news about me. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are, and so that he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus, a faithful and dearly loved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you about everything here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you greetings, as does Mark, Barnabas's cousin, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And so does Jesus, who is also called Justice. These alone of the circumcised are my co-workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. He's always wrestling you for you in his prayers so that you can stand mature and fully assured in everything God wills. For I testify about him that he works hard for you. For those in Laodicea and for those in Hierapolis, Luke, the dearly loved physician, and Demas send you greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her home. After this letter has been read at your gathering, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And tell Archippus, uh, pay attention to the ministry you have received in the Lord so that you can accomplish it. I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So let's take a bit of time today and walk our way through what it is that Paul teaches as he comes here to the end of the letter. Particularly as we get closer and closer to the end, we need to fight against our tendency that we often have to read really quickly so that we can get done and finished and check the list of reading through Colossians or any other letter off of our list. So over the last two chapters, Paul has been explaining what people who have been transferred from the realm of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son are to do, what they are to be about. To put it in modern terminology from, I think it was Seth Godin, that people like us, people who've been transferred into Jesus' kingdom, do things like this. People made alive in Christ have put off the earthly sinful nature. He says this in chapter 3. And have put on the new self that comes from being made alive in Christ. So Paul, in his first concluding exhortation, presents to us that people made alive in Christ pray. Now I want to read this a bit more awkward translation of Colossians 4, 2-4 to than what's in your Bible to show you kind of the interconnectedness of these verses and then explain them a little bit. So listen to how a bit more awkward reading would go. Continually persevere in prayer by being watchful and by being thankful, by at the same time also making petition about us, that God may open the door of the word to proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I have been put in chains, that I may reveal it as I should. So let's walk through that for just a moment. People made alive in Christ pray. So notice how Paul begins there in verse 2. Continually persevere in prayer. Notice the, the work of that, that there is an active engagement with prayer. And as we consider this call to pray, let's take a second to celebrate God's kindness to us in coming today to this passage that exhorts us to pray. Months ago... When this sermon series was put together, none of your pastors had any knowledge about the fear and frustration that would be such a dominant part of our national conversation. 
the national conversation on March the 15th, 2020 was supposed to be about whose bubble was going to be burst by the NCAA basketball, men's basketball tournament selection committee later on in the day, or who the number one seeds in the tournament would be, or why Duke got an undeservedly high seed with an easy trip to the Final Four, and Kentucky got the shaft again, even when our athletic director was on the committee. Well, maybe that's a smaller subset of the population, maybe just in my house. No one could have ever guessed, even a week or two ago, that March Madness would be canceled, that all NCAA spring sports would be canceled, that the NBA and the NHL would be postponed, and even the Masters would be put off to a later time. And this is just sports. Our world has been turned upside down in ways that shock us. But our God is not caught off guard. He ordained for our congregation to be graced by the challenge from Scripture to persevere, to endure, and to never give up making petitions to Him for ourselves and more importantly for others. I know that a few days ago in the media, some folks mocked our vice president for leading our government's task force for combating COVID-19 in a word of prayer by saying that he should depend on science and maybe, if we're honest, for a fleeting moment or even longer, maybe we thought the same thing. But dear friends, remember, please remember that our God is the king over science and over prayer. If we understand science and prayer biblically, we can understand that they are friends and not foes. So we can, we can hope that our government will push all kinds of measures to create vaccines and to have tests, but that should never stop us from praying. And frankly, prayer should never stop us from hoping that science and technology will be used to help alleviate the suffering of people. Because when we realize that any scientific breakthrough that's made to combat this disease comes from the fact that a gracious God made people with the intellect and the desire to understand and tame His creation and with the desire to step into the brokenness that sin causes, that's a grace gift from God. And at the same time, we also need to recognize that any impact that the prayers of God's people makes in this circumstance is also a grace gift of God. God is working in all these things to accomplish His purposes. And He's reminding us that if we don't have the medical skills, if we're not that technologically gifted, if that is not our place in God's economy, there is still something that we can do. We can persevere in prayer for ourselves and for other people. So how does that happen? How do we go about the process of persevering in prayer? Well, the first thing that Paul says is by being watchful. Now, as you look and read and study this a command to be watchful, that you're going to persevere in prayer by being watchful. There's really kind of two ideas that sort of bubble up to the, to the surface. And one of those is that being watchful is essentially paying attention. There's a lot of wisdom in that, that we need to be alert to the situation at hand. We need to be alert of mind. We need to be focused on what we are doing as we come before the Lord and come into His presence to make these petitions. The other way that this term, be watchful, is oftentimes used in the New Testament is in relationship to the return of Jesus. Being alert for the time that Jesus will return. And I think, really, that while oftentimes these ideas are separated as you look at various interpretations of the passage, that they actually go hand in hand quite nicely. 
that we are, as we pray, to always be looking for the return of Jesus, that as we enter into these petitions and we make them before God, there is a recognition that petition is needed because there's brokenness in the world. There's sin in the world. And we have to make petitions because God's kingdom has not come on earth as it is in heaven. Remember, Jesus taught us to pray in that way. But at the same time, we also need hand in hand with that hope and expectation and desire for Jesus to come and to fix all of this to also be alert to know what's going on in the lives of our neighbors, to go know what's going on in the lives of our friends, to know what's going on in our world so that we are well equipped and alert to speak and to petition God for things that matter both now and in eternity. So as we persevere in prayer, we begin by being watchful, and then we continue by being thankful. Persevering in prayer with thankfulness is is sometimes a difficult thing for us to do because we haven't necessarily seen the petition be answered. But if we come to God in thankfulness as we approach His throne, knowing that His ways are higher than ours, that His will is better than ours, that He is accomplishing everything according to His plan, we can come to Him in prayer before it's even been answered positively before the petition has been answered positively, and we can come to God with thankfulness that is grounded in a thankfulness that the only way we can even approach His throne is because of the finished work of Jesus. That Jesus' death and resurrection makes us able to come to God should be the foundation ultimately of all of our thankfulness. And then the third thing that he says is by making petition. Making petition for others. When we come to God in prayer, we need uh, to not be afraid of making our own requests, but we don't need to be overcome with the selfishness that sometimes seeps in as we make requests for ourselves. We need to be thinking about our neighbor. We need to be loving our neighbor as ourselves and bringing petition for them to our great God. And maybe in a time like this where there's so much uncertainty, where maybe we'll be shaken out of our everyday ruts of life and prayer. Maybe we can view it as a grace gift of God to have the opportunity to be jarred awake to the fact that my neighbor to my right or my left or across the street may not know Jesus. They may be separated from Him. They may still be in that realm of darkness. And I pray that God would motivate us to pray and then to act upon those prayers as we petition Him for their salvation. But notice that Paul doesn't just ask them to pray for their neighbors, to pray for others around them. He asks them to pray for him. Notice he says, making petition about us that God may open the door of the word to proclaim the mystery of Christ. So that's what Paul wanted them to pray for him. That God would open the door to proclaim the word And he explains it in terms of the words that he used earlier on in the book, describing this message that he proclaimed as the mystery of Christ. His desire is that above everything is that the mystery of Christ, that Christ dwelling in the Gentiles, that Christ, the Jewish Messiah, being king, not just over the Jews, but also the Gentiles, that that message would go out from him in any way that God would make it possible. But notice what he doesn't ask for directly. While 
An open door to preach the gospel might mean release from prison. That's not what Paul asks for directly. He just wants an open door to proclaim the word of Christ to anyone who crosses his path, whether it be someone who's guarding him, who might be moved by the Roman government to another part of the empire, but who could carry the gospel with him. Or if it's by being released, he just wants the opportunity to proclaim the mystery of Christ to as many people and not just to as many people, but to the particular people that God would have him to declare it to. And then notice the second thing that he asked them to pray. That he would be able to reveal the message that has been hidden and now made known as he should. And I'm just going to be really honest with you. As I read this again the other day and tried to read this with fresh eyes, that was a bit of a surprise to me for him to say like that he asked that they would petition God that he would be able to declare the message like he should. Now let's think about that for a second. After all this time of proclaiming the gospel, even now, Paul is asking that they would pray for him that he would proclaim the gospel as he should or as he must. So, so what exactly does it mean? So let's think about what it probably doesn't mean. I don't think Paul means that he's unsure of what the gospel message is. I mean, just remember what we've studied already in Colossians, much less his other letters, but particularly in Colossians 1 and 2, he makes it very clear that he is sure about the truth of the message, this word about Christ, this mystery of Christ. He is very sure about that content. So what is it, you think, that he's not, that he's, what is it exactly that he's requesting them to pray for? I think what he's trying to emphasize here and what he's trying to describe is that there are different ways that the kingship of Jesus, that the gospel message can be declared to different groups of people. And as we look at Paul's life and his ministry, we recognize that. To the Jews and sometimes even to certain Gentiles, he would emphasize the salvation plan of God throughout history, beginning with Father Abraham. Here in Colossians, he uses this language of a mystery, maybe because the false teachers were using that language that they had a mysterious message that was better and more hidden than Paul's. But he uses this language to explain that the message once hidden has now been revealed in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, King, who is not just the King of the Jews, but he's the King of the Gentiles as well. And this mystery, this miraculous mystery, is revealed that the Gentiles are being brought into the kingdom and the family of the beloved son of the one true and living God, or even in Athens. Think about when he preaches the gospel there in Acts 17. He changes the, the way in which he presents this very biblical message to make it as intelligible as possible to the Athenians. You see, Think about what Paul does there. He talks about the fact that there's one God. He doesn't sit it in the context of the Hebrew scriptures, per se. He doesn't talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he talks about the fact that there is one God who establishes all the various kingdoms of the earth. And he establishes the boundaries of their kingdoms. And he establishes when they're going to rise up and when they're going to fall, that he is the maker of heaven and earth, that he is one who does not live in temples made by hands, that he doesn't need anything, unlike the Greek and Roman gods. You see, he changes the way he presents it, but he never hides the most difficult things that 
that there would be for his audience to receive. He declares very clearly that there is one God who rules over everything, which is so beyond comprehension for his audience that believed that there was a God of the sky and a God of the sea and a God of the land and the underworld and anywhere else and anything else that you can imagine. And along with that, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus, that God showed who he was by raising this man, Jesus, from the dead. And this causes them to scoff because in their minds, once you're dead, you're dead. And even the idea of being raised in a physical body to never die again, that was something that was not appealing to them in their view of the world. But he continually presents the truth in ways they can understand, even if it's not a way that they might easily receive. And so that's why he knew that God would be the one that had to bring people from death to life. But even in that, even in knowing that God is the one who brings people from death to life, Paul is always crafting and recrafting the best way to share the truth with every different group of people that he meets. You see, Paul's sermons were never boilerplate political stump speeches. And he knew that he needed the Spirit's empowerment not to have a gaffe like the ones that get mocked on the news media from day to day. And even then, even then as he spoke the truth, even then as he spoke in the power of the Spirit, there would be folks that would call him a babbler or an idea picker, basically saying he was a bit of a bumpkin from the country. And Festus even said that he thought Paul had gone insane because he had learned so much. You see, God is always at work, and he was even at work in Paul, this great proclaimer of the gospel, to give insight and wisdom into the best way to declare the truth to the individual person or the group that is right in front of us. And we as well need to pray for God to give us that same wisdom as he gave Paul. So that leads us then into what he says to them. What can they do? Look at what Paul says there in verses 5 and 6. He says live. If you translated it literally, it's walk around. And I think that it's a, an interesting idea that you have there that living is about moving and going from place to place. So he says, live in wisdom. It's an idea that he's brought up previously in the letter. Live in wisdom toward those outside by snatching up the opportunity. Let your word always be with grace, being seasoned with salt, to know how it is necessary. It's that same type of language that Paul used about himself to know how it is necessary for you to answer each one. So this leads, I think, to really what Paul's getting at for them, is that people made alive in Christ, that's what our theme of our sermon series has been, people made alive in Christ not only pray, but people made alive in Christ act and speak with wisdom to unbelievers. I think you would also include believers, but he's speaking here specifically to those outside the kingdom. So what is he wanting them to do? Notice that weird language or that weird translation that I gave here by snatching up the opportunity. In most of our translations, it's going to say something around something like making the most of the time. What he's getting at here is we need to be actively engaged. We need to be going out, making much of Jesus, taking advantage of every opportunity. I mean, think about this week, as you've seen in news reports or maybe have experienced yourselves as you've gone to Costco or to various grocery stores in town, people are snatching, they're taking, they're 
trying to make the most of every opportunity to get their toilet paper or their meat or their bread or whatever it might be. What Paul's trying to get the believers in Colossae to do as they view the world and as they seek to make much of Christ is to, to be on the prowl like somebody is on the prowl these days for toilet paper to snatch every opportunity to tell someone about the grace of God that's been revealed in Jesus. So people made alive in Christ act and speak by going out and looking for every opportunity. But it's very important as we snatch those opportunities to speak and act with wisdom. He goes on there and says, speak the word. He's already defined that for us as the mystery of Christ that we're carrying, they're carrying the same responsibility that Paul had to speak the word, to speak this mystery of Christ, the mystery of how God raised Jesus from the dead and now he dwells in those who call upon him by faith to speak that with words that are filled with grace. That we're showing the grace of God and the kindness of God to the people that we are interacting with and trying to share uh, the gospel with. And we trust then that God in His kindness, as we act with His kindness, will bring people from death to life. But then there's one last metaphor that he uses. He's, as we consider more about how people made alive in Christ act and speak with wisdom to unbelievers, the last thing he says is a bit, well, let's just be honest, strange. He says that, that we are to let our words always be with grace, but that our words are also to be seasoned with salt. I don't know about you, but that seems a bit, well, strange. So, people made alive in Christ are to speak words with salt. So, in the ancient Near Eastern world, salt was used in several different ways. It was used to have a preserving effect. It was used to have a cleaning effect. But it was also used, like we use it, frankly, now, to have a flavoring effect. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. Paul is talking about how they are to speak the word with grace. And he's asked for them to pray that he would proclaim the gospel as he should. We've already talked about that. And now he's asking them to pray for themselves that they would proclaim the gospel as they should and that, that they're proclaiming this message with a satisfying flavor. So what he's doing here, essentially, maybe quite surprisingly, is he's exhorting them to kind of be salty. Now, one thing we have to avoid is not to use the definition of that term that we find in our larger culture. Okay, So in our larger culture, at least what I heard from, uh, from some of my younger friends, adopted children into my family, is that being salty is kind of, well, that you're kind of maybe angry or you're offended or you're, you know, getting ready for a little bit of a confrontation. That's the way the world views being salty. In fact, if you Google uh, salty and you look for the images, you're going to see a lot of angry people along with a lot of, well, Morton's salt pictures, frankly. We need to be very careful as we think about being salty about exactly how we go about it. What we're not doing is we're not angry with or resentful of the outsider. We're not expressing ourselves in ways that are rude, in ways that are unkind, 
That's the way the world uses this language of being salty. Salty Christians are not hateful. They're not rude. Salty Christians are something that is very, very different. So let's talk through what that might look like. Being biblically salty means that your speech brings the satisfying flavor of the gospel to different people in different ways. The story of God the Son taking on the flesh and entering this fallen creation to save sinners and rescue the totality of this creation that Paul talks about back in chapter 1 through his death and resurrection, the story that God the Father would send God the Son to accomplish this amazing task is the most amazing story that could ever, ever be told. So why do we oftentimes do such a lackluster job of declaring that Jesus alone can satisfy the desires of those around us who are seeking to fill those desires through all kinds of destructive choices? Why is it that not only are we kind of lackluster at showing the beauty and the flavor of what Christ gives in the gospel that we're so unwilling to give such an amazing thing to other people. We have the greatest meal to deliver, but yet we're so unwilling to just hand it over. But a salty Christian is willing to pre prepare the meal, to cook the meal, to hand the meal to the person who is hungry and in need of Jesus, the true bread of life. You see, the kingship of Jesus means that every realm of life, from art to engineering and anything in between, can be redeemed to display the glory of God as it's been revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. So how does that happen First, when Christians pursue excellence and create new things and new ideas for the glory of Jesus and not just themselves, that gives a beautiful demonstration of who our God is, how our God works, and the fact that He's transformed us when we give Him the glory for the accomplishment and don't take it for ourselves. You see, God has given us this mandate in creation to tend and to tame his, what He has made and to use it to, to build society and to build culture. He's given us this responsibility and a salty Christian is going to pursue this in the ways that God has gifted him or her for the glory of God alone. But I think Paul here is really even pushing us beyond just doing our jobs with excellence, creating new things, creating new ideas, building culture. He's saying you've got to speak the message about Jesus. He's exhorting these believers to describe the mystery of Christ in thoughtful, creative and beautiful ways that will engage the hearts and minds of the people that they meet. Because the fact of the matter is, is all of us are going to meet different people. It's what Paul talks about there in verse 6. And we're going to meet them in different circumstances. And we're going to have to be agile enough to present the message in different ways. And we need to pray that God would give us the ability, just as Paul did, that we would present it in the way that we should. And I'll be honest, this reality is something with which I struggle. 
A couple of years ago, one of those adopted children that I was talking about earlier got a little salty with me and told me that I was intimidating. Can't imagine why. So I got a little salty back. But it's led to an ongoing conversation that's been enlightening, sometimes difficult, but really helpful. Because you see, the first time I met this young lady was in a scholarship interview. And I remember distinctly when she walked into the room and she talked about what she thought God was doing in her life. She was very gifted, clearly academically, and she was explaining the way that God uh, was calling her to serve in his kingdom. And I thought that I was asking very friendly, kind questions. I even said that she would have a great place serving in the children's ministry of our church, which she does now. But apparently, there was something scary. And so now every year when I get ready to go to scholarship interviews, Jessica tells me, just smile. And I thought I was. But apparently, not so much. And maybe sometimes it's something as simple as that. That it's difficult for us to share the gospel, or maybe it's maybe better said, it's difficult for folks to receive it because maybe we just don't have a smile on our face. Something as simple as that. And as you probably imagine and frankly have experienced, I'm sure, talking about the Bible can sometimes get me pretty animated because I'm passionate about God's people reading and understanding the Bible better. I might wave my hands around. I've noticed that I've actually done that a good bit as we've worked our way through this passage. And I might talk louder and louder. And some folks, maybe someone I meet at school or Starbucks or wherever it might be, if, if I get animated in talking like that who don't know me well, or maybe even some that do, might think I'm angry or frustrated, or something else. Because in their experience, loud talking has never been a medium through which anything positive has ever been shared. But in my family growing up, we all talked all at the same time, especially when we were having fun or having fun arguing, which is kind of a pastime in our house just for the joy of it, I guess. And we just keep talking louder and louder and louder, be heard. And it's all in fun and in love. But that's way different for a lot of people. Or maybe that excitement could be mistaken for being confrontational. Now, we could discuss the ways that we misunderstand one another for days and weeks and get really depressed. I can even give you some books to read that will even make you more depressed. But let me say it this way. The gospel confronts people enough. Let's do our best in what we say, how we say it, how we carry ourselves to not be confrontational. Declaring that Jesus is the only way to know God and have eternal life, that offends people. Let's do our best in the way that we share that truth not to be offensive. For me, that means that I need to be extra aware of rising excitement. And I'll be honest, I'm still not great at it. And learn, I need to learn different ways of conveying that excitement and different ways of conveying that joy than just talking louder and faster. For you, it might be something different. But all of us need to value lost people made in the image of God enough that we consider their needs above our ease 
and learn to share the message as we should. And frankly, ask God to empower us by His Spirit to have an awareness of ourselves and the circumstances that is beyond our normal capacity to recognize. And I believe that God will use that to accomplish His purposes and to, and to help people to, to know that not only do we believe something, but that we truly care about them as people more than we care about ourselves. And that will communicate the truth of the gospel as clearly as our words. So, how can I, maybe some quick ways that I can be biblically salty. Here they are. Number one, be willing to listen. Listen. I like to talk. I like to talk a lot. But we need to be willing to stop talking and listen. And then we need to be engaging. Engaging by asking questions, being inquisitive about the other, being inquisitive about why someone believes the way that he or she believes, and to ask that question with inquisitiveness rather than suspicion. Be interesting. The folks at TCC are some of the most interesting people that I've ever met. Be yourselves. Share your interests and how you are interesting and quirky and, and even strange because it shows that people who have been called by the grace of Christ into his kingdom are just that. They're people in need of a Savior. But along with that, we've got to always be honest. We don't need to hide our convictions. We don't need to act like we don't have strong beliefs. Because the people that we're going to be conversing with, they have pretty strong beliefs too. It's okay to have difficult conversations. It's okay to disagree. But that leads to the last thing. Always be kind. If we can learn in our conversations through which we're trying to lead into sharing the gospel, or even in those direct conversations where worldviews are coming into clash, where a biblical worldview is coming into disagreement with a secular worldview or whatever it might be, that even in the midst of disagreement, we commit to always be kind. In many ways, we can fall back to what Jesus said to the disciples about how they were to relate to one another as he was getting ready to leave, that, that they will know that we are Christians by the way that we love one another. And they'll know that we are followers of Jesus by the way that we love them, even as they reject the message that we share, reject the Christ that we love, or even reject us. If we are loving and kind and gracious throughout, that will speak volumes to those that we want to know the love that Jesus has for them. That then brings us to a transition. In verse 7, Paul transitions into, into the final part of the letter. And we could summarize it in this, and we're going to move through this very quickly, because frankly, most of the time, people read through things like this really quickly. People made alive in Christ. So people made alive in Christ pray, People made alive in Christ speak and act with wisdom toward those who don't know the Lord. And lastly, people made alive in Christ reveal God's grace through their presence and their purpose. 
So let's just look very quickly. I'm not going to read all the verses, but I just want to, to, to mention all of the names that Paul brings out here because they are important people. We can learn from them even as we move fairly quickly through the passage. So the first section there, beginning in verse 10 and going through verse 9, talk about two people. They're the letter carriers, Tychicus and Onesimus. He describes Tychicus as a dearly loved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant in the Lord, and he'll tell you all the news about me. Now, Tychicus might not be one that we would be surprised to hear about. But the next one, the folks in Colossae would be shocked to hear about. Onesimus, and notice how Paul describes him, a faithful and dearly loved brother, and then lastly, who is one of you? Now in the very, uh, in a few letters later in our New Testament, the letter to Philemon, it's about this very guy, Onesimus, who was a runaway slave who has gone to Paul for help, it seems, in a dispute with Philemon, who was apparently a significant member of this church in Colossae. And Paul says when he left, he was a disaster. He had done something, it seems, that was wrong. But now, he's not a rebel. He's a faithful brother, a dearly loved brother. And notice how Paul says, he is one of you. God has changed him. And you accept him back into your group as a family member. And it reminds us that no matter what happens over years and weeks or days that we share the gospel, and no matter how many times we're rejected, or no matter how many times someone does something that's hurtful, God is still at work, and God can bring anyone from death to life and into the family. The second group that Paul mentioned are the folks that send their greetings. He does this beginning in verse 10. And they send their greetings to the folks there in Colossae. There are six people that are mentioned. Three of them are Jews. Three of them are Gentiles. Verse 3, Aristarchus, John Mark, Justice. Those are the Jews, the only ones Paul says that are with him. And then Epaphras, who loves them, who I love the language Paul uses there who wrestles in prayer for them. Like, he truly is embodying this perseverance in prayer. He works hard for them. He loves them. This is kind of the wrestling church planter, you could call him. And then you have Luke, the physician, and Demas. The one I want us to just spend a second looking at is John Mark. You remember John Mark's story? We don't actually see his name a lot in the New Testament. It was his home where the early followers of Jesus, well, his mom's home, where the early followers of Jesus met after Jesus had been uh, raised from the dead. He may have even been the person in Mark 14, 1, or four, it may not be, it's not verse 1, but in Mark 14, at the very end of the chapter, actually, that runs away naked, who's caught off guard when they come and arrest Jesus. That's a pretty embarrassing thing to put in a gospel that you wrote. And by the way, he wrote a gospel. But he's also the guy on the first missionary journey after Paul and Barnabas had made their way through the island of Cyprus. When they got to the most difficult part of the journey in southern Galatia, and they were about to go through about 100 miles of mountainous terrain with, with swollen streams and bandits. It was a scary part of the journey. He went back home. He failed. When it came time for the second missionary journey to start, the betrayal was so great that when Barnabas wants to bring him along, Paul says, there is no way that's happening. Paul doesn't let John Mark go on the second missionary journey because of the failure of the first. But even in that circumstance, God was working to bring restoration to John Mark and to expand the gospel to new frontiers. Because until that break, Paul was just going to go to the places he had gone on the first missionary journey. But now 
He's gone on to new places. And John Mark has been restored because you see our failure is never God's last word. He can take all of our failures and use them for his glory. And that brings us then to the last word of the letter. The last word of the letter, Paul says there in verse 18, I'm writing this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. And then his last word is this, grace be with you. And my prayer for all of us in these very, it seems from our perspective, uncertain times, is that God's grace would be with us, that we would be filled with His grace, that we would display His grace, that we would speak His grace to everyone that He brings us into contact with. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We trust Your sovereignty in this situation in our country. We pray that You would accomplish Your purposes we pray that you would give us a voice to speak of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ for the glory of Jesus and for the saving of sinners. That is our petition. That is our desire. We pray that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen.